0: Hello, and welcome to Swallows of the South. I'm Quinn Wilson, storyteller. We have lots of good stuff on deck for you this week, so I won't dawdle long. I wanted to thank Magnor Creole for their excellent five-star review over on iTunes. That means a lot and helps get us out there to more new people every week. And before we get started, I did want to let you listeners know that we touch on some pretty intense themes in this week's episode. If you find self-harm, familial abuse, or intense bullying to be troubling, there are going to be parts of the episode that you are going to want to skip or to be in a comfortable place when you listen to. We were not excessively graphic, but these topics were present in the session and important to the narrative and the characters, so I feel it's important to have that out there for everyone who might be listening to this. Please check the show notes for timestamps on these particular topics. With that out of the way, let's get started. In the time of myth, when gods and mortals walked creation together... Ariston and Ajax spoke with Iselsi Mayumi in Godwin's childhood home about Raghuravijai and threats to come. Meanwhile, Godwin tucked away upstairs, hiding his purpose. What was he getting up to? How would he handle the blood on his hands? Just how much longer could Ajax and Ariston keep up the facade of social faculty? So why don't we go ahead and check in on Godwin, who is coming to in his room right now. As I had described earlier, it's mostly as it was when he was a child, except that there is this small mobile shrine. What does the shrine look like? So the shrine is a lacquered wood cabinet. It's very red and shiny. It stands about a foot tall. It's designed to be very, very portable. And on the inside of the cabinet, inside of the doors, there is a small area where small offerings can be placed, as well as, that's on one side, on one side there's a track where offerings can be placed, and on the other side is a place where a number of sticks of incense can be set and burned. On the inside of the cabinet itself, there is a small wooden platform that is raised up and decorated around the corners in some elaborate high-realm script. And on top of that little platform is a statue of the five elemental dragons kind of curled around each other. It's relatively iconic for the Immaculate Philosophy. So Godwin has probably seen similar depictions as he traveled with his mother as a child, if not in statue form, then certainly depicted pictographically. It's made out of the five colors of jade that are typically associated Mm -hmm. with the dragons. What is Godwin doing as he is slowly coming awake?
1: Godwin opens his eyes and sits at the foot of the bed, kind of processing what's in the room and how everything is familiar, but it just feels different. And he looks over at the shrine, processing it, still also becoming acquainted with the morning and what that feels like. So Godwin is also reeling over the fact that he did kill a man and what that looks like in terms of that being an identity that he will have to maintain for the rest of his life. You know, that's something that he can't take back at this point. And that concept of it being so permanent Starts kind of clutching at him, and he is overwhelmed, and it feels like he's in a box that's just kind of closing in on itself, and he doesn't know how to express it. So he hops up and just shatters the shrine. He starts kind of throwing it all, all of the items everywhere in the room and kicking at it and smashing pieces, and he takes a deep breath and looks at all the tattered bits on the ground, and he's breathing heavily, looking at the remnants of the shrine that he just destroyed. He... Sees the statue of the five elemental dragons that was once in the shrine, still fairly intact despite his destructive tendencies a moment before. And he picks it up and then, once again, kind of just sits this time cross legged on the floor in front of where the shrine once was and looks at it from every angle, analyzing it, but also having this glaze over his eyes like he's staring right through it. And he feels that he's not actually looking at it, he's just acknowledging that there's an item in front of him and then he gets up and throws it out the window it smacks against another home but it doesn't shatter it just kind of rolls into the grass below and that frustrates godwin the permanence of the statue starts eating at him the whole idea of permanence so he shuts the window and then he walks into the bathroom he looks at himself in the mirror and it scares him He looks like he has these dark, dark lines under his eyes. And his eyes, again, don't look like they're focused on anything. They're just kind of glazed over. And his hair is just everywhere. And it's so uncontrollable. And he just wants to control it. He wants to have control in his life. And he leaves the bathroom and goes into the closet that was next to the bathroom. And starts digging around and digging around until he finds some scissors. And he goes in the bathroom and just starts cutting off his hair. Just to try to understand something in his life. And then he just cuts at it, cuts at it, and it looks like a mess. And he just looks in the mirror at what he's done, and he still doesn't like it. So he decides to make it not look like a disaster, which is what it looks like now, and begins clearing away at the sides and making them short and trim and in line. And once he's satisfied with that, and the word satisfied being used lightly because he's not in a state where he really is committing to any emotions, But once he decides he can move on from that, Godwin steps away from the mirror and he looks over at the tub and the bucket of water that has been placed next to it because people had been living there. And so they left it set up and he enters the tub that has water in it and then gets the bucket that also has water in it and just pours it over himself. And he's still dressed, but he doesn't really care. He hasn't really processed that until he's been soaked in water. And so he just kind of sits in the tub with this bucket in his hands, looking at the pieces of his hair that are lying or kind of floating in the water around him. And he just dips his head under the water and opens his eyes and looks at his knees, but still feels really trapped. And so he gets up and stands up in the tub and rips his clothes off and hopes that that'll help, but that doesn't help. And he just sits back in the tub, naked, processing, until he decides to move on because this isn't going to help. And he gets up. He grabs a towel and starts with his head and just kind of starts shaking his head under the towel as much as he can, covers his whole body and then shakes like a dog, try to get the last little droplets off. And He looks himself in the mirror again and he can't see past the bags under his eyes and everything that he doesn't like in the mirror. And he sighs and he doesn't know what to do, so he smashes the mirror. And even though he's trained... In martial arts, he still cuts his hand quite a bit, and he sighs, but he also reels back because for some reason it felt good to hurt. It didn't feel as numb in just that instant, but then again, he's overwhelmed with this feeling, this numbness, and he hates it, but he doesn't know what else to do, and he he doesn't know how he feels about the fact that pain made him feel something, but only in that moment. So he looks at the pieces of glass on the floor, kind of brushes them off to the side, We'll clean them later. And he goes to the closet again and finds some bandages and starts bandaging up his hand. Not really wincing or anything, just kind of bandaging. Once he's got that all cleaned up, he walks back to his bedroom. He opens up the armoire and looks at the clothes in there. And he doesn't really like them. They don't really fit him. They seem young. They seem like a him that isn't the him he is now. And he shuts the armoire and he thinks about things, and he's just standing in his room naked, bleeding out of his hand, processing. And then he walks into his parents' bedroom.
0: His parents' bedroom is where Vijay has been living and sleeping, so he actually has some of his clothes strung up in different places. So it is relatively well-maintained, and there's a lot of familiar elements in the room, but it's also clear that Vijay has been occupying this space and making slight alterations to make himself comfortable in that context.
1: So Godwin walks into his parents' bedroom and it's the same, again, where he sees that things are different, but his understanding of those things are just kind of glazed over. It's like he mindlessly walks towards this large armoire that's against the back wall and it's almost like everything else in the room is a little bit blurry. He doesn't care to look at them. They're not important to him right now but he goes towards the armoire and he opens it and he sees clothes that belong to his father and clothes that belong to his mother. And he looks at this one dress that his mother would always wear for her concerts. And he remembers how he would lie in bed, struggling to fall asleep. And then she'd come home from her concerts in that dress and she would sing to him until he fell asleep. And he remembers what that smelled like. So he grabs the dress and tries to smell it and it doesn't smell like anything. And he sighs and lets the dress go and kind of falls to the bottom of the armoire. He doesn't really bother to hang it back up, but he goes towards his dad's clothes and holds them against his body, and some of them are a little bit big, but some of them will fit just fine. So he puts a couple of them on, and he looks in the mirror, and he looks a lot like his father, and he doesn't like that. He wishes he looked like his mother, but he doesn't. Every day he looks more like his father, and that scares him. But he doesn't smash that mirror. He just storms away in a huff and goes down the stairs. Godwin starts coming down the stairs, and... He looks vastly different. So he, in a fit of identity crisis, didn't really know how to cope with the emotions he was feeling, cut his hair. So it's like, it's very long on the top. It's kind of like he just cut it on the sides. Just a beautiful mess. Looking like a man. And he is now wearing what looks to be one of his more formal shirts. So it is a more traditionally Asian style of shirt and that it kind of goes up to the mid neck and has those little clasps that go down, but it also has these like kind of puffy sleeves that get really tight three quarters down. And then he's got this sash kind of around his waist and then like regular pants. So it's, it's a little bit of a different look than we've seen it from him before. And he just kind of takes a seat at one of the chairs in the little salon
0: it's nice to see you up and moving about mr Carelli. and this is the first time clearly that he is seeing her without the mask on
1: so godwin had been looking at his hands but he looks up at mayumi and just kind of nods understandingly still not really feeling in himself the strength to speak
0: After our first encounter, I was expecting you to be a little bit more lively. There's something melancholic about you. I can see how heavy the weight is. Your friends are more here for you than you're willing to recognize that they are. You don't need to shut yourself away. But I suppose I'm not exactly one to be dispensing life advice. Anyhow... I figured that I should do you the courtesy of informing you that when you did away with our mutual associate and lit up bright enough to bathe the city in sunlight that some people downriver certainly became aware of your presence here. Vijay did not come alone. He was a vanguard, a forerunner, an experiment which has, at this point, summarily failed. There's a much larger force outside this city, headed by three of the realm's finest. They will do everything they can, not only to ensure that the three of you are put down like the dogs that they believe you to be, but that not one pirate vessel remains anchored beneath this city, and that not one heretically worshipped god stalks the streets of this city, I would advise that you be careful with them. But if you have any sort of feelings for this city, it would be in your best interest to make sure that they
2: make as few waves as possible. I think the city's, the city's welfare is very important to all of us.
3: I agree with Ajaxar. First priority is protecting the city, especially since I know it would be unfair of me to bring any harm to it. It's not my own.
0: Well, they're interested in this idol in the same way that Vijay was, but now they're going to bring to it the dogmaticism and aggression that is typical of a holy war or a wild hunt. I tried to warn you. I really did but what's done is done and that cannot be helped. If there's anything I can do aside from supplying you with the lead, which I've left you with, I'm happy to give you some more information. Um,
2: I think that's all we need.
1: Wait, is she still lying? Like, has she lied about anything?
2: I mean, I, I feel like we've kind of established that she doesn't have a reason to lie to us. Okay. About the stuff that she's told us, at least. Cool. Making sure. Yeah.
1: Needed to know whether I needed to use my dank charisma.
0: (laughs) So, she is going to walk over toward Godwin. As she's walking over, she says, I would also advise that you do something about all of these legionnaires that have been set loose. They don't exactly know what to do with themselves. She looks at Godwin, and on her own forehead, a green symbol begins to kind of faintly sparkle and sputter it is if any of you know the astrological sign for jupiter it is that but it kind of looks like a 4 with the top kind of being shaped into a, like a big hook um so this astrological sign for jupiter begins to sparkle on her forehead as she says the hair looks good on you godwin and all of you are suddenly overwhelmed with the knowledge that simultaneously that entire conversation happened and that Iselsi Mayumi was never in this house with you, she is gone, and you are filled Maybe. with this contradictory knowledge.
1: Godwin, wait, is she like, did she just kind of like apparate or whatever? Like, or She was literally never there. But like her, she's just gone now. Like it's almost like we closed our eyes and opened them and she's just not there.
2: Or did well, she like yes. leave the room and then you're like, what? Well, it's like she was it's like we walked into the room and we blinked and we were filled with the memory that she was there without her. But having there's actually no been like there.
1: manifestation of her being present
2: at this time. No right.
1: Okay.
0: There's no evidence of her presence, and you are aware that you had this interaction. Yeah. But you're also aware that you never had this interaction.
1: Yeah. So Godwin looks at the space that he knows that she didn't just manifest in, but he knows that she was just there. And he just kind of Shivers a little bit and slumps in his chair.
2: It's very late. Why don't we all get some rest and we'll meet at Quinn's in the morning. All right, sounds good I'll... or or later this afternoon.
3: <laughs> let's just give ourselves a long let's give ourselves a day. I think we we, we just all, all the, the emotional and physical shit we've gone through. I think we deserve at least at least till the next morning.:
2: Yeah. see you all at Quinn's.
3: See you there, Ajax. See you wouldn't want to be, am I right? God, I mean, does really nod or frown, he just
1: kind of gets up and walks up the stairs.
0: Okay, are you all doing anything special before you take that sweet, sweet slumber?
1: And then he looks at Ajax and whispers, Sleep tight, Pepper. What? <laughs>
3: Ariston feels so left out.
2: And <laughs> Ajax feels like he wish he wishes he could be left out. <laughs> before Ajax goes to sleep, he gets home, puts a little bit more food and water in the habitat of his pet box turtle. And then like kinda tucks him into sleep what? before tucking himself into sleep.
3: Aww. Oh, that got really sweet and sad at the same time. <laughs> sleep tight, Ajax. Ariston uh he he goes back to his house and since this bit is like kind of first night, Usta? is it implied that to- <laughs> Lucy? They're still there. They're still-
0: <laughs> this district is still a mess. Like, it's definitely not necessarily safe for most people to be here right now. Okay,
3: well, Ar- you know, they, they've been very much quiet. Well, now that, like, Godwin isn't in his house anymore, Ariston goes up to his room and he opens one of his drawers and pulls out this, this like, shell. And it has, he just starts like running his hand up and down and you can see that there's this like shadowy image of a face on it. It's a man's face and he's just holding it. And then he kind of just puts it to his chest and falls asleep.
1: So Godwin walks up the stairs and he stops in front of the doorway to his bedroom and he looks to his left and sees the double doors that go into the larger room that was at the end of the hall on the left. And he opens the double doors, and he looks, and it's another room, but it's filled with a lot of warm items. Um, It's vastly different from his room, and there's a large bed in it, and it looks like clearly it's his parents' room. And he walks around in it and just kind of brushes his fingers along the counters and of the armoire and stands at the foot of the bed, and he kind of just tosses himself onto the bed and crawls under the sheets and thinks about what it was like when he would crawl in between the covers with his parents when he felt afraid, and then he falls asleep.
0: As he is about to nod off, he can see that hung in the corner of the room near where his parents keep their clothes, there is a hanging robe with the... House like inscribed boldly upon it. So as this robe fades out of your vision clearly and solidly in the blackness of your dream you can see solidifying in front of you Vijay's Diclave and it's slowly turning and as you see it you know instinctually its name and that name is Metagalapa's Ridge Slowly it begins to reduce in size until you can see it hanging on the back of a wall in a large room where there's a woman sitting at a desk with a brush and ink attending to ledgers. You understand that this is your mother. You are 8 years old and this is the first time you've seen her in a long time. She's been very, very busy and the keepers of the house and your great uncle Akim have been tending to you lately. You haven't seen your mother or your father in a while. They've been busy attending to their duties to the house, but as you come up close to your mother, she smells like warm cinnamon, and heat kind of rolls off of her in waves. Her face is lightly obscured by her intense and fiery red hair, and you can hear some approaching footsteps. The screen into the room slides open, and you see your father. He stands at six foot seven feet tall, He has grey, stony, rough skin, and he opens his mouth when he sees you in the room. Vijay, get out. Your sister Prema and I have something we need to talk to your mother about. And standing lightly behind him with her arms lightly crossed is your sister Prema, she is standing back uncomfortably as your father continues to enter the room. You need to stop clinging on to your mother like a child. You're going to be leaving for primary school next year and nobody likes a hanger-on. You can feel yourself flinching away as he gets closer. Do not treat me like that. You're a child. You will listen to what I say. And he raises his hand sharply. You're sitting in a classroom at your primary school. The teacher is not present. You are all waiting for them to enter the room. And one of your classmates, a young boy, stands and his hair begins to raise on end and his entire body is slowly enveloped in raging fire. And then a girl sitting next to you stands and begins to raise into the air as gusts of wind begin to envelop her. Another one of the classmates is slowly raised from the floor on a trail of vines and blossoming flowers. You can hear bubbling and gurgling as another one of your classmates stands and their anima erupts in a flood of water. And finally, another classmate stands and their skin is beginning to be coated in this rocky substance. And then, one after another, the rest of your classmates begin to stand, each of them enveloped in their elemental essence. And you sit In the corner, unaffected, unexalted. You are reaching onto a tray that has an extra snack on it. You were told that you could only have one, but this is your favorite. As you grab it and turn away from the counter, Prema is standing in the doorway. You were told that you weren't allowed to do that. You know that, right, Vijay? You do know that I'm going to have to tell the matron about this. You stumble forward and try to stop Prema before she walks away. You try to cover her hands with your mouth to stop her from speaking. You can see the matron down the hallway. And you're trying to silence your sister. And suddenly there's an immense force in your gut and you crash into a wall, tearing into the wood. A rock is sitting at the pit of your stomach and your sister is beginning to flare her elemental anima this is the first time it's happened she looks confused and scared as you begin to fade out of your consciousness you can hear your father's voice you would do well to respect the exalted especially in your family to disrespect them is to forfeit your duty and your life You are 16 now, still unexalted, but you've been diligently studying at the Spiral Academy. It's uncomfortable for you here. You're the only unexalted student in the majority of your classes, and their attunement to essence and the attendant-raised social status that brings means that you're falling behind. You're trying as hard as you can, but most of the time it's just not enough to keep up. It's made you a target for a lot of scorn and ridicule. After class one day, as you are moving back to your dormitories, a girl from House Cessus has cornered you. She presses you up against a wall. Her hand is closing around your neck, and she whispers in your ear, I think it's time for you to go home, you half-breed shame. You are 20 years old now and riding at the back of a caravan. Punched in your hand is the scroll that signifies your graduation from the Spiral Academy. You are entering the narrow, rocky passageway that separates the Spiral Academy from the House Ragura lands that your family makes home. And as you're passing under one of the overpasses, the rocks fall down around you, not knowing what to do or how to react Suddenly, you are in tune with the very nature of the earth and the rock itself, and it sloughs away from you, and you continue on home. Your father is not allowing you to forget the shame and embarrassment that the family's been forced to live with because it took you so long to assume the mantle of your responsibility, but you are still allowed to enter the dojo with him. He takes a training sword and throws it at you. He takes his real sword, draws it, snaps it into its sheath, and leaps forward. Your mother is watching. She does nothing. It's been a hard number of years... You've been training vigorously and endlessly with your father. He won't allow you to forget that you've got so much catching up to do that he doubts that you'll ever be able to actually do it. Still, he's given you the sword that was promised you as a child, Metagalapa's Ridge. It's finally time for you to end your training, to assume the title of master. Your hand shakily reaches towards your blade. Your father is already bearing down on you. You stand, dressed in a battle apron, now only with one arm. This representative from House Ocelci stands behind you. Your father is seated, not looking away from his papers. Suffice it to say that if you cannot succeed at this simple information-gathering task and the annexation of a small city, you will be summarily disowned. You failed House Ragara one too many times. Despite the fact that you've been training for so long, you can't seem to get a hold of your blade. You keep trying to reach, but the cascade of stones that are pummeling towards you with each of your father's swings is keeping you from doing that. You're not fast enough. Everything hurts. And then, suddenly, in the midst of this torrent of pain, there is a blossom of something hotter and more intense than the rest of it. You can feel it in your left arm, and you fall to the ground... You look over as your vision begins to become unfocused and blurry. There's a bloody stump, and on the floor next to you is what used to be your arm. It is twitching at the fingers, still trying to reach, still trying to maintain its grasp, and it cannot, it can't grab anything. The blood loss is getting really intense. You're having trouble focusing. Your father stands, putting his immense pressure on your good shoulder, pinning you to the ground. A smile peels across his lips. See, I always knew. Failure.
1: So Godwin shoots up and just starts shaking immensely while hugging his knees that are under the sheets. And he just starts sobbing animalistically, these raw, throaty, coughs almost because he can't handle that kind of emotion after he's already so exhausted and he just starts kind of clenching his hands tightly in his hair and trying to breathe deeply but it's all just so much but he looks out the window and he sees that it's light out and so he starts kind of taking these deep breaths and It takes him about 20 minutes or so before he really kind of calms himself down enough to look at the wall in front of him clearly.
0: Now something is going to happen to give you an intimacy.
3: Oh. Yay.
0: What's Godwin's resolve score? Three. Okay, so what is the emotional tenor of the feelings that that dream left you feeling toward Ragura Vijay?
1: Towards Vijay... Godwin now feels shame. He captures that feeling that Vijay is a failure inside of him. He relates to his father in that sense, but it's bigger than that. It's this emotion that he too has failed because Vijay has failed. He feels the weight on Vijay's shoulders to amount to something. And he was the person that kept Vijay from that reality, that ability to live up to his father's expectations. And so. He feels like Vijay's failure is also his failure now because he feels so deeply linked to that experience. And so it's, it's guilt, it's shame, it's remorse, but it's also alarming him that part of it makes him feel slightly less worthless. There's a part of him that goes, at least I'm not Vijay. But inside he feels like he is so quintessentially linked into Vijay's experiences that he doesn't really know how to handle that contradiction. He just takes a deep breath and almost swallows his breath and throws off the covers and sits at the foot of the bed for a while, with his legs hanging off, just kind of staring at the ground.
0: So it is into the day when you guys all arrive at Quinn's. Um, how, how late into the day would you guys say that you think it is?
3: Like 11 o'clock a.m.
0: Okay. So, it's 11 o'clock as you guys are arriving at Quinn's, and as you all approach the door, you hear quite a lot of commotion coming from the inside of
2: the store. The The establishment, the office, yes. Does anyone else have the key to get in? Go through the fucking dog door. (laughs) It's a pet door. They must have gotten in through the pet door.
1: So, Godwin sighs and looks at the two of them, and there's no contempt for Ariston. There's nothing... His face is just kind of jaded, even though this is clearly something he would be upset about. But he just looks at the two of them and looks at the door and just goes, well,
0: let's check it out. You guys open the door and there is actually two wild dogs that are (laughs) running around the office space.
3: I was about to say, I bet it's another wolf.
0: (laughs) And they are actually chasing a bluebird that has flown into the office. And so they are like leaping on the logs that are set about for seating and trying to leap up and jump at this bird that is flying around. Papers have kind of been shuffled all over the office and trampled upon and pine cones are kind of strewn about.
1: Godwin takes a moment to kind of analyze what's happening in the room. And then in one Swift motion, he runs towards one of the desks, gets some footing on the log and kind of like kicks the log off in order to like jump off of it and stand on the desk and then grabs the bluebird.
3: Ariston is able to kind of, he's able to wrangle the dogs and, and kind of have them like in each arm. He <laughs> has sort of a calm, calming presence with animals. So they're not happy, obviously, but they're not trying to bite him. Too bad he doesn't have that kind of presence with people.
0: So, yes, uh, Ariston wrangles the dogs. What does Ajax do?
2: Um, I just start taking all the papers that are strewn about and trying to organize them, putting them back into the cabinets and stuff.
0: Ajax is resorting
2: the papers.
1: <laughs> what the fuck is the bird doing in here?
2: Came in through the pet door, probably.
1: God, look at this little. His, his clasped hands, and he can feel the bird kind of flutter in it a little bit, but then kind of quiet in. But he can also feel it kind of pecking at his hands at some points, but he just kind of flinches a little bit. And he walks um, towards the door and he just kind of throws his hands out and lets the bird go and his hands are bleeding because the bird was pecking at him. And he just silently walks towards the the back office slash cry room looking for some medical supplies.
0: Okay, but he goes back into the the back room.
3: And he uh, finds a box of bandages and begins bandaging his hands. Ariston just kind of somehow like kicks the door open and... Kind of like pushes the dogs outside and they they run off like they they've lost interest as most dogs do. When of the dog eats the fucking bird. of <laughs> life? <laughs> just in one bite. Yeah. He
0: fucking eats it. Like jaws.
3: <laughs> so er- Ersten comes back inside and he just kind of s- starts brushing off the dog hair off of his clothes.
2: Um and then Ajax um he finishes filing all the papers away. And he starts picking up the pine cones and then he calls out to Godwin. Godwin, is there any specific order? In which you keep these pine cones.
1: So Godwin walks out from the back room, having just finished bandaging his hands, and he walks up to the desk with all the pine cones on it, and he just kind of picks up the pile of pine cones, both with googly eyes and without googly eyes, and walks outside.
0: And does Ajax follow or let him go? Uh he just lets him go. Godwin's walking at the door. But Godwin just walked out of the door.
3: So Ariston is still pretty tired and he's also kind of overwhelmed by the situation but he knows that if he goes and tries to talk to Godwin that it's not going to help anything because he doesn't understand what Godwin is feeling right now and he just wants to give him his space so he just gets out a piece of paper and starts making some semblance of like a plan of what they need to do and who to talk to and also he just like as he's doing it he just kind of starts like drawing waves and like getting sidetracked because he's very anxious right now and he's trying to calm down.
1: Godwin comes back without any pine cones. She kind of looks at uh, Ajax while doing that little iconic, you know, dusting off his hands. What else needs cleaning?
2: Is everything all right?
1: It's fine. Although you can clearly see Godwin's got huge bags under his eyes. It's fine. Did he
2: get enough sleep?
1: What else do we have to clean?
2: Oh, we're good for now.
1: Okay. So Godwin just kind of saunters over to his desk and plops on the log and just puts his ha- his hands in his lap and kind of stares at the wood pattern on his desk and traces his eyes along the grain.
2: You know, maybe you should take a nap. No. I think it'd be really beneficial. I'm fine. Your pine cones don't seem to think you're fine.
1: They're pine cones, Ajax. They don't think.
2: What's changed?
1: I'm just having a day. Today has been a day. I'm just, I'm fine, Ajax. Really.
2: All right. Well, you should let us know if it isn't.
1: Why would I go to you for that? Really? Why? You always treat me like shit Ajax.
2: Look Godwin
3: I know we all haven't interacted with each other in the best in the past but we're still a friend. We're still here for you.
2: Work associates.
3: Not, not the time Ajax. You've never been friends to me. Godwin I can't imagine what you're going through now and I know Ajax can't either but we're all we have here. We really are.
1: Somewhere I've got to have more than this.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Swallows of the South. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us, rate us, and review us on iTunes. Every review really helps get the show out there to more new listeners. If you want to find us on the web, you can find us at SwallowsOfTheSouth.com, on Twitter at SwallowsOfSouth, on Tumblr at SwallowsOfTheSouth.tumblr.com, and on Google Plus at Swallows of the South. If you have any questions you would like answered, or would like to speak to Quinn via email, please send your messages to swallowsofthesouth at gmail.com. Our intro music is new by Elvis Herod, and I hope to see you next Tuesday.